Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you've given us your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our way. We recognize that we need the help of the Holy Spirit if we are to understand and to believe and to respond to your word by living out your word. We ask for grace to embrace your word so as to obey it. We pray that even as your word reproves and corrects us, it may indeed be a balm to our soul. We ask too that your words mature us, build us up, and equip us for every good work this day. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking and indeed working our way through this little letter to Titus for a number of weeks now, and, and tonight we come really to the very final portion of it, <coughs> chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. Throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul uh, is really giving instructions to Titus on how to deal with various matters affecting the churches in Crete, and all of the instructions that Paul gives in this letter are given in the context in which these churches on that island find themselves. And Paul essentially draws attention to two fundamental issues affecting uh, the, the churches in Crete. One is that these Cretan Christians are living in a very immoral culture a culture that is not only influencing them, but is also pressuring them to conform to the surrounding culture. And the other is that there are false teachers in the churches tempting believers to depart really from biblical truth. And so Paul, throughout this letter, is constantly urging Titus to exhort people in the churches to adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior, in the way they live, because Paul doesn't want these Christians being influenced by their culture. Instead, he wants them to be distinct from the culture around them, uh, in the way that they believe, in the way they think, and especially in the way they live. And he wants them to be distinct because he wants them to become really a witness to the culture around them, a witness of what Christ has done for them and in them. And so over and over again in this letter, Paul urges Titus to teach the people to make sure that they are living out the grace of God in their lives and that they are adorning the doctrine of God, their Savior, in the way that they live, in the way that they think, and really in, in everything they do. And especially they are not to conform to all the immorality around them. And Paul also several times gives teachings to Titus on how to deal with false teachers false teachers who have effectively rejected apostolic doctrine and are in many ways troubling the congregations by teaching against what Paul teaches. And Paul makes it very clear that 
because false doctrine always undermines the Christian life, it must always be rebuked and silenced. And so in these closing verses, Paul really addresses five important issues. And although I say five issues, uh, I'm going to run through them rather briefly. And firstly, in verses 9 to 11, he tells Titus how to respond to divisive false teachers in the local church. Secondly, in verse 12, he speaks about the importance of pastoral care in a local church. Thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, he makes it clear that we are to be fruitful in the Christian life. Fourthly, in verse 15, he addresses the importance of fellowship among believers. Fifthly, at the end of verse 15, he actually reminds us how essential God's grace is in the Christian life. Firstly, how to deal with divisive false teachers, verses 9 to 11. In verse 9, Paul says this, But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. What I've just read is actually from the ESV, so it reads slightly differently to the NIV. And then in verse 10, he says this, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Here Paul's telling Titus how to deal with the false teachers who are really causing division in the church. And he tells Titus, he tells Titus to do that in two ways. Firstly, these false teachers are to be shunned. In other words, don't engage with them. Don't dispute with them. Don't even debate with them. Simply shun or avoid them. And then secondly, if they still persist in their false teaching, they are to be warned twice. He says that in verse 10. And if they continue, they are to be excluded effectively from the church. We could say that Paul is concerned that the local church not become a free thought society where apostolic teaching is viewed as just one of many other potentially valid options. You see, for Paul, a local church exists only and solely to proclaim the absolute truths found in God's word. And so Titus is not to engage with these false teachers, or even to allow them a platform to say anything in these churches. They are to be shunned. And if they persist, they are to be disciplined effectively and rejected. And I think it would be said that, that in our culture today, Paul's approach to dealing with false teachers is often seen as being very narrow-minded because there are many people in the church who think that Paul should allow for different opinions and different ideas. Well, I think we need to appreciate what Paul is saying here. He isn't saying 
that they can't be legitimate questions about the Bible or doctrine. What Paul doesn't allow is views and opinions that are in contradiction to God's word. Because Paul only wants preaching that agrees with the scriptures and that agrees with what the apostles themselves teach. We live in an age that is often referred to as the postmodern age. It's an age in which there is no objective truth, really an age in which truth is relative. An age even where Christians are encouraged to cultivate their own subjective spirituality based on their own personal experiences of the so-called mysteries of faith. Unfortunately, this is quite common in churches today. And in many ways, that's, that kind of thinking is similar to the kind of thinking in Paul and Titus Day. Titus Day. And, and this is why, as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, there are no other valid alternatives to sound biblical teaching and preaching. As far as Paul is concerned, only, the script, only in the scriptures do we find absolute truth because ultimately all truth is God's truth and truth can only be known by divine revelation and divine revelation is in the Bible. And so Paul wants to make sure that Titus and, and the other elders proclaim the truth of God's word in all these local churches. And they are to make sure that those who oppose the truth of God's word do not get any opportunity to proclaim their false doctrines and ideas. We should understand and, and appreciate that a local church is an assembly of people who are wholly devoted to the faithful teaching of God's word. A church should be devoted to building up saints in accordance with God's word. That is what our goal as a church should be. And that's why truth, God's truth, must always be guarded and proclaimed in every generation. That is our duty today. We have to guard the truth and we have to proclaim the truth so that those coming after us know what the truth is and it is their responsibility to pass it on to the next generation. Secondly, the church is to provide pastoral care. Look at verse 12. Paul says this, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. In other words, Paul wants Titus to come to him at Nicopolis, which, by the way, is modern-day Greece. He wants Titus to come to him at Nicopolis and to spend a winter with him. And Paul knows 
that Titus will be useful for his ministry. He knows that being with Titus will be really an encouragement to him. And being with Titus will, we could say, lift Paul's spirits and perhaps enable him to do even more crucial gospel ministry. That's why Paul wants Titus to be with him. But if you look at that verse very carefully, he doesn't want Titus to come until replacement ministers, that is Artemis and Tychicus, are in Crete to continue working with the elders in the local churches. It's because he doesn't want the ministry in those churches to suffer in any way. You see, what Paul's doing there is that he's making clear the importance of pastoral care in the local church. As much as he wants Titus to be with him, Paul doesn't want the pastoral care, the help and the support of the churches in Crete to suffer in any way. So he'd rather wait until the support is there in the form of other ministers to take care of the flock. And only when these replacement ministers are in place should Titus leave Crete and come to help and support him. It's very clear from that that Paul is really concerned about the church and he's willing to forget about himself and his needs. And he's put the church first. And that, my friends, is the attitude every one of us should have. We live in a day and in a time when many things compete for our attention. And I think it's fair to say that left to our own devices, we will soon succumb to all kinds of evil and false teaching. And as Christians, it's vital we understand that we need other believers around us not just to support us, but to hold us accountable to the standards and requirements of Scripture. Why do I say that? Well, passages like Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse, 4, four, verse 12, remind us that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The Bible tells us that iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 27, verse 17, and that we are to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. You see, life is difficult enough on its own. Life is far too difficult, and we are far too sinful to live in solitude. We need community. We need accountability. And thank God that he anticipated our needs by giving us the local church as the primary means of that accountability. Yes, pastors and elders have a responsibility before the Lord for the care of our souls. But each one of us also has a responsibility to provide pastoral care for each other in the church. That's how families work. 
And that's especially how the church family works. Thirdly, we are to be faithful, rather, sorry, we are to be fruitful in the Christian life. Look at verses 13 and 14. Paul says this, Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. In the Christian life, we are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, we are to live out grace by being committed to the cause of kingdom work. And looking at these verses, we don't know what kind of ministry Zenos and Apollos were engaged in. All that we know is that Paul wants Titus to tell these congregations to support that work whatever it was. In other words, Titus is to make sure that Zenos and Apollos have everything they need to enable them to carry out the work that they're doing. And Paul also wants the Cretan congregations to be wholly committed to supporting that ministry. And then notice almost as a by the way what Paul says in verse 14 and let our people also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs why does he say that and the answer is that they may not be unfruitful in verse 14 isn't that rather interesting that he should say that. Why does he say that? Notice what he said earlier in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul speaks about the false teachers and the worst thing that he actually says about them is this. Their foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law are unprofitable and worthless. Because, that, because they do not produce fruit, really, in the Christian life. But here in verse 14, Paul is saying this to Titus, and I will paraphrase what he's saying. I want to see fruitfulness in these Christians. And so instead of debating and disputing false teaching or being influenced by the worldliness of the culture around them, I want these Christians to throw themselves wholly into supporting the work and ministry of Zenos and Apollos. And they are to engage themselves in every good deed in order to support that work and ministry. And if you notice again in verse 14, the priority that Paul puts on cases of what he calls pressing needs. In other words, we shouldn't wait passively for those who need help. We shouldn't wait to be asked to, to help. We shouldn't wait for somebody to come to us and say, I need help. Instead, believers are, should 
I, I, I should should actively seek out those who need their assistance. And this is why in a church you should make it your job to know everyone in the fellowship. When you know everyone, when you talk to them, you will know what their needs are without them even asking for help. All of us should, as Paul says, be engaging in good works to meet pressing needs in the church so that we are unfruitful. That's how we become fruitful, when we come alongside someone. And that good deed may simply be a kind word of encouragement. It doesn't have to be handing out cash or goods or whatever. A kind word can make a huge difference in someone's day or even weak for that matter. And so in verse 14, the emphasis is on doing good works as a platform for witnessing effectively. In fact, Paul actually says that uh, in several portions throughout this letter, in chapter 1, chapter 2, he says that same thing. And last Sunday when we looked at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, we saw that we are not saved by our good works, but that we are saved for good works. Those good works are the fruit produced in us by the Holy Spirit. And that's how God uses our good works to witness to others in the church and especially to unbelieving people. And so Paul wants these Cretan Christians to be so committed, in a sense, to the Great Commission that they give themselves wholly to that work, to, to doing good deeds as a way of supporting the church's ministry and outreach. And as I said earlier, this is important because good deeds are, the, are a fruit of God's grace to us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do those good deeds. That's the kind of attitude we are to have. And I think it's important we appreciate that our Lord in his exhortation throughout what's called his farewell discourse in John chapters 13 to 17, our Lord's exhortation there is that as Christians, as his disciples, we are to be fruitful. That is, we are to be productive. In fact, that's a theme that we see in many portions of the New Testament. And one area we can be productive in is doing all we can to support our churches, missions, and outreach work. That's something I believe very strongly that we as a as a congregation ought to be devoted to. We have a very large mission field, no more than three or four miles from where our church is. And we should be excited by the fact that we have many witness and evangelism opportunities in our own backyard. Milton Keynes is a mission field that desperately needs to hear about Christ. So we should be praying for that outreach to the nearby estates. Fourthly, 
fellowship with other believers. That's in verse 15. Look at that verse. All who are with me greet you. Notice that phrase, all who are with me. It's interesting that Paul is always with someone. And notice too how he's always pausing in his letters to give greetings to other people in other churches. And do you know why Paul does that? It's because of fellowship. It's because fellowship, a shared life, and the communion of the saints is important to Paul. We sang just a few moments ago John Newton's hymn, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. We were saying there to God that we love his church. Do you love the church? Do you love our church? Do you love everyone in the church? Many people, I think far too many, think of Paul as a theological giant, which he was, but tend to think of him as a theological giant working alone. But we often overlook the fact that Paul's mission and a very important fact about Paul's mission and work, his friendships. From the New Testament, we know that Paul had male and female friends of every race and rank, and he was almost always surrounded by other Christians. He planted churches throughout the Roman world, and he never did that as a one-man band. He traveled with friends, he stayed with them, he visited them, he worked alongside them, he preached alongside them, he was beaten alongside them, he sang in prison with friends. He encouraged them, was encouraged by them. At times, Paul even disagreed with his friends, and at times, he reconciled with them. That's the picture you see of Paul in the New Testament. And a quick read through the book of Acts shows Paul's commitment to and genuine concern for his friends. Barnabas, Titus, Silas, Luke, Priscilla, Aquila, Lydia, Anisiphorus, Epaphroditus, John Mark. I could have gone on and on and on. In Romans chapter 16, by the way, he mentions more than 30 names. You see, in all his writings, Paul is always bringing greetings from Christians who are with him and passing on greetings to other Christians. Paul knows that Christian ministry requires and promotes true gospel fellowship. That's why Paul was never a lone ranger, a never a lone ranger, and that's why he loved God's people. Paul needed Christian fellowship, and he thrived on the mutual encouragement of that Christian friendship. And that's why all of Paul's letters all have greetings. And here in verse 15, Paul says, all who are with me send greetings to you. He's simply passing on the greetings of all who are with him to Titus. Notice at the end of verse 15, Paul says, greet those who love us 
in the faith. See, Paul's reserving the, the, a special warmth there of Christian fellowship only for those who stand firm for the biblical gospel. Because Paul knows that anyone who denies the essential doctrines of the Bible can't really be called a Christian in any meaningful sense. In fact, the Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John 2, verses 22 and 23. And so Paul wants us to cultivate genuine mutual communion and fellowship in the church because he knows that the Christian life requires that kind of fellowship. That's the message Paul has for us in that verse. And fifthly, the necessity of grace. Look again at verse 15. And you'll notice that Paul actually concludes this letter just as he began it, with a blessing, with blessing Titus, with a pronouncement that God's grace would be with him. He said that in 1 verse 4, and he says it again here in chapter 3 verse 15. It is, as one Bible commentator says, it's a final prayer for Titus' strength as he organizes the church on Crete and confronts the false teachers troubling the churches there. At the end of verse 15, Paul says, Grace be with you all. That's really a benediction, a word of blessing. In those blessings, Paul's reminding us really of God's powerful, prevailing, and unmerited favor. In other words, he's reminding us of God's special grace to us, his people. He's telling us that God's grace is absolutely essential for the Christian life. God's grace, remember, is God's personal favor to us. It's God's unmerited pardon of us. It's God's strengthening power in us to grow us to spiritual maturity. You see, Paul understands and knows the necessity of grace and he wants these congregations to be fruitful. But he knows that if they are going to be fruitful, they need God's grace. And that's why he pronounces this benediction of grace on them. He wants all of them to have God's grace, to enable them to live the Christian life. And so what we see in Paul's final words in this letter, we see him really speaking to Titus about how to pastor in the context of false teaching, how to pastor a congregation that is in the midst of an immoral culture, and how along with elders, a pastor is to come alongside and help and build up a congregation. And Paul also gives us guidance as to how congregations are to be faithful by committing themselves to kingdom work, to the work of God, 
and how congregations are to enjoy true and genuine fellowship with one another. And especially we are to love gospel friendships. And finally, Paul emphasizes how we are to depend wholly and completely on God's grace in the Christian life because grace not only saves us, but it's God's grace that sustains us. And Paul's message is no less important to us today than when it was first written all those years ago. May God bless his word to us so that we adorn the gospel in all areas of our lives. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we pray that in our lives we would adorn the gospel and that our bearing of fruit be seen in our love of Jesus, in our love of his disciples, his people, the church, and may it be seen in our commitments to kingdom work, especially to, to the expansion of the gospel in Milton Keynes. And may we give sacrificially of ourselves and of the resources you've blessed us with for that work. We pray that we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all these things in every area of our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Our closing